Good morning. Welcome to Park Church. I'm, I'm super, super excited to be with you this morning. Uh, not least of all because we are starting a new series called The Story. But before, before we jump in, I just want to say I've, as we meet here on Sundays and, uh, and continue through this series, as, as you meet in your community groups uh, and, and questions come up, if there are any questions as a result of one of the sermons here or, or questions that come up in the community group. If you have any questions, please feel free to email those to bible at parkchurchnj.com. Uh, Matt and I would love to collect as many questions as we can so that uh, the, the Sunday after this series ends, we'd, we'd both like to sit up here and, and with the questions that you've set, sent in, respond. Um, and so unless there aren't any questions, because you already know it all, that, which would be great. Uh, but yeah, feel free to email any questions um, as, we, as we continue to go through, through this series. Uh, if you were here last week, then you know that we, we introduced this new series called The Story, where we are taking the whole story of the Bible, the meta-narrative, the big story, and we're breaking it up into six different bits. Six different parts. Uh, and we're beginning this morning with what we call Act One of the drama of the scriptures. And I want to begin with a story. Uh, several years ago, back when I was a pastor in Phoenix, there was a, a young single mom who, uh, who began attending our church. And she had several kids, had her hands beyond full. Um, and within a month or two of her coming, we got into a conversation one uh, Sunday right after the worship gathering. And she, she told me that shortly before they started coming here to our church, uh, that her five-year-old son, Benjamin, approached her one day. And he said, Mom, where did we come from? Misunderstanding her question, his, his question, she said, well, Benjamin, we just came from the grocery store. You know, it's the one that we go to all the time. Uh, and he then quickly corrected his mom and said, no, no, mom, like, where did we all come from? Like, where did all of this stuff come from? Little five-year-old Benjamin was asking a profound question. And, and as this, this young mom, this single mother, uh, was telling me this story, she, she told me that the minute she realized what her son was asking, she became terrified because she had no idea how to respond. Where did we all come from? It's a profound question. And anthropologists and sociologists have long observed that this is a question that every culture Every religion, every people group, every society in some way tries to answer. And we all answer it in roughly the same way, by, by telling stories. We tell stories to answer this question of where did we come from? And so I want to begin another time by telling another story. Uh, this is a, an old, old story that 
that attempts to answer this question, and it's probably not the story you're thinking I'm going to tell, at least not yet. This is a story that, that was pervasive in the ancient Near East, or what today we would think of as the, the, the Middle East, especially during the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian rule in ancient Mesopotamia. And the story went like this. This is a, a well-known, popular story. In the beginning, before there were humans on earth, there were gods in the heavens. And the gods looked down upon earth and noticed that there was a lot of work that needed to be done. And, and so the elder, stronger gods gathered together the younger, weaker gods and said, okay, we are now ordering you to go to earth to do the hard work that needs to be done. These elder gods, these stronger gods, were called the Anunnaki, and the weaker, younger gods were called the Agigi. And so the Anunnaki sent the Agigi down to earth, where they came and began to work. And they worked hard. They toiled and labored, digging canals, clearing channels, creating what today we would call some of the great rivers in our world. They worked day and night, night and day, for 3,600 years. And as time passed, they, they began to grumble and they began to complain. Resentment began to grow in their hearts as they realized that basically what they were was slaves. They were slaves of the gods. And, and they began to cry out at the injustice of their situation. And it reached a boiling point when they decided to rebel. So they got their tools, they lit them on fire, and they stormed the gates of heaven, crying out against the injustice that they had suffered. Well, the Anunnaki, the ruling gods, they, they saw what was happening. And, and in order to avoid a sort of civil war in the heavens, they said, let's, let's talk about this. And so they had a conversation. And, and at one point during the conversation, someone had an idea. One of the gods had this bright idea. He said, I know. I know what we'll do. Let's, let's create a new kind of creature. We'll call them humans. Right? And their job, their purpose will be to relieve the work of you gods. To do the, the hard manual slave labor that you all have been doing so that you can return to heaven and enjoy luxury and comfort with the rest of us. And of course, that sounded like a good plan. And so, according to this ancient creation story, human beings were created. And they were created to be slaves. Now think about this. Like the stories we tell and the stories we believe matter. And if you, if you were king over a massive civilization like Babylonia, and the majority of your kingdom was comprised of slaves, which your economy depended on, what kind of story would you tell? What kind of story would you perpetuate in your kingdom? You would tell a story where the very point of being human is to be a slave. 
It's to do the hard work needed in order that the gods, one of whom, of course, is the emperor, in order that the gods can enjoy luxury and comfort. This was a pervasive, powerful story in the ancient Near East. And there were several stories like this, many of them very similar. And it's in the context of this story that I, I want to now shift and begin to talk about the biblical story. Because while everyone knew this story in the ancient Near East, there was this small group of people, this very small group of people, just a speck on a map, who told a very, very different story, a radically different story, a story that we today know as Genesis 1, the first chapter in the first book of the Bible. And, and, and let me just say, oftentimes when we, at least in the past 100 years, when we talk about creation as the story is told in the Bible, uh, the, the conversation centers around questions like, like, well, what about evolution? And, and, and was it literally six days? Or is that figurative? Like, was, was it, are we talking about a young earth or an old earth? Like, th these are often, at least in the past 100 years of discussion, these are the questions that often define the conversation. But, but what I'd like to do today is, is set these questions aside and ask two other questions. Because these two other questions, I think, often get neglected. They often get pushed aside. And I think they are absolutely central to understanding this story. And the questions are, who is God and who are we? Who is God and who are we in the midst of this ancient Near Eastern society, culture, where we have all of these different creation stories swirling about, there was another story being told. And it started like this. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Immediately, we see a contrast. We see a contrast because unlike everyone else at the time who believed that there was a pantheon of gods, there are many gods. This odd group of people that we know today as the historic Jewish people, they said, well, no, actually there's only one God. There's only one God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you were living in the ancient world, you, you didn't have a telescope. All you could see was what you could see with your eyes. And, and as you looked around, what you saw fundamentally were two things. There were the heavens, which is everything up there, seen and unseen. And there's the earth, which is everything down here. And so when, when we're told that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's a way of saying in the beginning God created everything. God created everything. This one God was in the beginning, and he created everything. This is yet another difference in the story, because not only in the ancient Near East, but if you study Greek theology at all or Roman theology, 
What you find is in the ancient world, everyone believed that there were many gods, not just one. But not only that, but you read the stories of these gods and you quickly discover that they, they're more powerful than us, but, but they're actually a lot like us. They're at times immoral. They can be bribed. They can have their pride pricked, right? They get angry. They can resort to violence. They can be petty and vindictive. And they, the stories about the gods as you read them, you quickly discover that this, this kind of in some ways feels like some of the drama that we read on the news about our politicians. <laughs> like, it's not all that different. It feels like they're just a part of the creation. And yet in this story, what we find is something so different. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's this thick line of differentiation between the creator and his creation. The creator's utterly other, distinct, different. The creator is different than the tree out there than the rocks, than you and I. This is a story in which God is not in everything. God is other than everything. Although everything comes from him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as the story continues, we find the story describing this, this process in terms of six days six days of creation and each day God creates something new and as we reflect on these six days what I'd like to do is draw our attention to to a few images of God that emerge right because remember if our fundamental question right now is who is God what is God like there are a few things that we cannot miss as we're reading this story. And the first is this, that, that God, as he's presented in this story, is like a, he's like a king whose kingdom is all creation. God is like a king whose kingdom is all creation. In verse 3, what we read is that God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And this continues on to the second day. And what we find is this pattern, and you don't have to know Hebrew in order to recognize this pattern. What we find with each day is, and God said, let there be and there was. And God said, let there be, and there was. And God said, let there be, and there was. God speaks, and things happen. This is, what, this is a pattern that, that scholars refer to as a fiat pattern. Kings in the ancient world, sometimes they would rule or decree things by fiat, which means they, they would simply speak. And before anything was written down, their word became law. Here in this beautiful story, we see God described as a king whose power is so great 
And he speaks, and creation issues forth. God is like a king whose kingdom is all creation. And here's what this means. If, if God's kingdom is all creation, everything belongs to him. Everything belongs to him and everything matters to him. See, we, we have this tendency to want to categorize things. There are the spiritual things that, that matter to God, and then there's everything else. Those aspects of our lives that are, I guess, what you would call unspiritual. There's the sacred things, and then there are the secular things, right? And we know, we know what these are, right? I mean, going to church, that's a spiritual thing right? Reading your Bible, praying. These are all spiritual things. These are the things that really matter to God, but, but sharing a meal with friends, recreating, the, the thing that you do with the most hours of your week, your nine to five, it's so easy for us to think that, well, those are, those are kind of not as important to God. But if God is like a king whose kingdom is all creation, then everything belongs to him, everything matters to him. And as the great uh, pastor and, and writer A.W. Tozer once said, when it comes to what you do in your nine to five, it's not what you do that makes your work secular or holy, it's why you do it. And so here we find God speaking like a king speaking and, and, and things happen, right? He's, this, he's like a king whose, whose kingdom is all creation, which means every aspect of your life deeply matters to him. And he wants it. He wants all of you, everything. So God is like a king. But there's another image that emerges as we read through this story. And what we discover is that God is, is not simply like a king. He also, in a sense, this, this might sound odd, but he's like, he's like a skilled engineer who brings order out of chaos, who brings order out of disorder, who brings order out of dysfunction. Listen to this in verse 2. Verse 2, we find that after, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. As, as a quick aside, we're not going to run down this, this trail, but, uh, but notice the three agents so far in creation. There's God, there's the Spirit, who we just read about, and there's God's very word through whom he creates everything. Now, that's just a tease. I can't flesh that out more, but it's curious, isn't it? We find God, we find his spirit present in creation, and we find his powerful word. But what we find, though, is that God is like an engineer, a skilled engineer who brings order out of disorder. There's a phrase here. In, in verse 2, that describes the beginning state of the world. So God created the heavens and the earth. 
right? He, he opened the, the box with a Ikea book shelf in it, spread all the stuff out, all right? There it all is. And it's described as being formless and empty, which in Hebrew is pronounced tohu vabohu. And yes, I'm going to make you learn this phrase with me. Everyone with me. Tohu vabohu. Again, tohu vabohu. Last time, I promise. Tohu vabohu. Good job in the back. I could hear you. Tohu vabohu. This is, a, this is a phrase that scholars have gone to great lengths to try to figure out because it's an odd phrase. It's, it's hard to nail down and find just the right English words to describe what's going on here. At its essence is this idea of formlessness, of emptiness. But even more than that, it, it describes a state of, of unproductivity, a state of fruitlessness, almost chaos, right? And, and again, it's, it's like you're, you've opened up this box and all of the parts to this piece of furniture are just laying there. You can't put any books on the shelf yet. It's dysfunctional. It doesn't work yet. And, and God, like a skilled engineer, takes this and systematically creates order. He takes the dysfunction and out of it creates something gloriously functional. And, and we see this in the very pattern of the six days. In the six days, we, could, we can break these two days up into two columns, right? We have the first three days in which God, in essence, creates the space or the conditions in which life can flourish. And then, and then in days four, five, and six, God fills the space, right? And so what we have in day one is that God creates day and night, in day two, sea and sky. In day three, land and plants. He's, he's preparing space. He's preparing the conditions. And then in day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars, which fill the space of day and night. On day five, he creates the fish and the birds, which fill the space of the sea and the sky. And on day six, he creates the land animals and the humans, which fill the space of the land with all of its vegetation. Like a skilled engineer, he takes the state of disorder, of dysfunction, and out of it creates something gloriously functional. There's something deep within all of us that longs for orderedness. There's something deep within each of us that, that is pained by the chaos and the dysfunction that we both experience out here and that in our more honest moments we know exist very clearly in here. And what we see in this story is a God who rolls his sleeves up or rather we should say clears his throat and he takes the dysfunction and he begins to make something gloriously functional out of it. And he does this throughout the whole biblical story. He gets in the mess and he's constantly working, right, to, to undo whatever chaos we find ourselves in. This is why, I mean, any time 
we have something that breaks, that doesn't work, right? This happens often for me. It's, it's so aggravating, whether it's a computer, your washing machine, right? Your car, whatever it might be, when something isn't working the way that it should, it, mm, life can be very, very difficult. And yet, here we get this image of God at the very core of his being, who is one who, who works to, to make things work. He's like a skilled engineer who brings order out of disorder. He takes the tohu vabohu and creates something gloriously functional out of it. But there's one more image, one more image we cannot neglect as we work our way through this first chapter in the book of Genesis. God is, God is the creator, is, is not simply a, a king whose kingdom is all creation. Is, he's not simply like a, a skilled engineer who brings order out of disorder. He's also like a master artist who delights in his work. God is a master artist who delights in his work. There's another pattern we find in these six days. And, and it's this, every single day God creates something and then he takes a look at it and he sees that it's good. And, and, and then it happens again. He creates something, takes a look at it, and he sees that it's good. And, and we get this image. It's almost as if God was this master painter with this huge canvas of creation before him, right? And he's got his paintbrush and he's just working away, right? Day one, he steps back. He's like, oh, that's good. That's good stuff. Let's, let's keep going, right? And he steps on. Okay, day two. Steps back. Oh, man, this is good work. I can't stop, right? And he keeps going. Day three, God sees that it was good. Day four, God sees that it was good. Day five, God sees that it was good. He looks at his art and he delights in it. And then day six happens. Something very special happens on day six that we'll get to. God creates human beings. And he takes a step back, and it's not good, because it's very good now. God, like a master artist, delights in his creation, especially the apex, the crown jewel of his creation, human beings. And we're going to unpack this again in just a moment, but at the very least, consider what this means. Because, because think about this, there, there is a way of telling the story that I think often, I think often it's told in this way, that, that begins in chapter 3 of Genesis. Sometimes when I hear the story told or the gospel preached, the, it, it begins in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is what we'll be discussing next week. Chapter 3 in Genesis basically is where everything goes wrong. It's, it's, it's the great tragic moment in the biblical story. And oftentimes when I hear the story told or sometimes the gospel preached, what I hear is, is the story beginning with, you are messed up, right? You are broken 
And God's angry at that. And it needs to be fixed. Right? But that's not how the story begins. See, if this story is true, you, at the core of your being, are not God's real piece of work. You are God's work of art. Do you see the difference? Yes, you are in need of restoration. This is what we're going to be talking about next week. And yet, do you see the difference? At the core of your being, God created you good. Has that goodness been twisted and marred? Absolutely. But, but this is how the story begins, with a God who's like an artist. An artist who delights in his work. So much so that when it does get damaged and distorted and spoiled, he's willing to go to the ends of the earth in order to restore this work of art. Who is God? Well, according to this story, the one true story of the world, God is the creator of all things. He's like a king whose kingdom is all creation. He's, he's like a skilled engineer, right, who brings order out of disorder. He's like a master artist who delights in his work. This is who God is. But if this is who God is, what does this mean for us? Who then are we? Well, we've already heard one story that was very common and very pervasive in the ancient Near East. Every member of the ancient Jewish, uh, Jewish people would have known this ancient Mesopotamian creation story the one I told earlier. They all would have known this story, the point of which is you as a human being were created to be a slave. That was the point of the story. And again, the stories we believe and the stories we tell ourselves matter. They matter tremendously. Because if that's why you were created, to be a slave, then what that means is that your worth, your value, your dignity, is determined by your utility. It's determined by what you do, not who you are. And it was in the midst of this very pervasive, powerful story, once again, that this, this, this small group of people told a counter story. And at the apex of this counter-creation story, we find these words, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We were not created to be slaves. We were created to be God's royal ambassadors in his creation. This is amazing. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This story was revolutionary then, and it's revolutionary still. 
We, as human beings, were created as God's image bearers. What in the world does that mean? Couple things to keep in mind here. First of all, in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a king to, to erect statues of himself throughout his kingdom. And so uh, any little town, right, even if you were on the outskirts of the kingdom, any little town would have a statue of the king. And that statue was made in the image of the king. And the purpose of that statue was to be a reminder for everyone in the town of the presence, the power, and the purpose of the king. Just in case anyone wanted to get any funny ideas. Right? That was the purpose of this statue. And here we are as human beings being described as image bearers within the, the kingdom of God's creation. Wherever we find ourselves, we are to be a reminder for the rest of creation of the presence of God, the power of God, and the purposes of God. One, one helpful way to think about this, and if I had thought about this beforehand, I would have grabbed a mirror. I would have grabbed one of these mirrors that's like this, and I would have put it on my head. Because to be an image bearer looks like this. Imagine there's a mirror right here, right? It looks like having an angled mirror on your head. When the world then looks at you, what they see is a reflection of your creator, right? So what it means then to be a human being, at least part of it, is to, is to reflect, to be an image bearer is to reflect the image of God to the world around, to reflect his beauty and his justice and his wisdom and his character and his glory, to, to be his royal ambassadors, to represent the creator to all creation, to to be creation's stewards and caretakers, to take care of this good world that God has made. This, this is an incredible vocation, to be a human being, starkly different than any sort of a slavery narrative. No, human beings have intrinsic value and dignity and worth because we bear the image. Every human being is intrinsically valuable and worthy because we are image bearers and so we are designed to reflect who God is to the world around but it doesn't stop there we are not only called to be a witness to who God is but also to worship him because as we reflect who he is to the world around we then sum up the praises of creation in worship to God because how are we as human beings to reflect who God is, unless we actually know him. How can we possibly reflect his justice to the world unless we personally know his justice? How can we reflect his forgiveness and his grace to the world unless we have had a life-changing encounter with his grace and his forgiveness? To be an image bearer is to embrace two vocations, a vocation of witness and worship. Witness and worship. This is what it means to be human. 
worship, and witness. Now, I began this morning sharing a, a story from the ancient Near East. And it was a very popular, very pervasive story that many people believed that deeply shaped how people thought about God or the gods and themselves. And no one knows that story today, right? It's called the tale of Atrahasis, right? You're falling asleep just hearing me say that. No one's heard about that creation story, and yet we live in a cultural milieu in which we do have creation stories. We do have creation stories, and the stories that we believe matter. And it would be curious even just to hear, I won't do this, but to hear what, what you think some of the dominant creation stories in our society today are, but I'll just, I'll just name two. The first is what, what I might call a, a modernist or a materialist creation story, and that basically goes something like this. Hey, we don't really know where we came from, but, but what we do know is that it probably wasn't from anything like a god or the gods or a creator. I mean, th those ideas are silly and antiquated and outdated. What we know is what we can smell, taste, touch, and feel. This is a fundamentally materialist story, right? Or what we might call the modernist story. And there's another story as well, and it's closely connected, and it's called the postmodern story. Or you might call it the anti-story story. And this story goes like this. I just said story like seven times in a row. This story goes like this. There is no big story. There is no ultimate meaning or purpose in life. So your job is to make it up. You've got to create your own meaning, your own purpose in life. And I just want to ask, in light of, in light of all of these stories, including the dominant creation stories today, I want us to reflect on these two questions. Who is God? And who am I? Who is God and who am I? Your answer to those questions will reveal the stories that you believe. The stories that we believe matter. I'll close with this. So there I was talking to this young single mom about this conversation with her five-year-old son, Benjamin, which terrified her. But the story wasn't over. She then told me that shortly after attending our church, one day after the service, she was on her way to go pick up Benjamin from Sunday school. And before she even got there, he burst out the door with this huge smile on his face. He was excited about something. And he ran toward her, and she assumed, she assumed that maybe he had played a fun game, made a new friend, maybe he had a craft he really wanted to show her. And he, he ran, almost knocked her over, and said, Mom, Mom, I, I know. I know where we came from. We talked about it in Sunday school. God made us. He made all of us. He made everything. Right? He's so filled with joy. Like the, the stories we believe matter. And I, here's what I'll say. I deeply believe that the more that we live within 
the true story of the world, the biblical story, the story in which we learn who God is. He's a king. He's a, he's a skilled engineer. He's, he's an artist who delights in his work. And the more we discover who we are and what it truly means to be human, to, to know him, to walk with him personally, and then to let who he is transform us so that we can reflect who he is to the world, like, the more we will discover the joy and the excitement and the hope that little Benjamin had. This, this is my hope for us as we, as we continue to move through the story. Will you pray with me? Father, you are so good. We thank you for this story. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself as the creator of all things. As a king whose kingdom is all creation, as a skilled engineer who brings order out of disorder, and as, as a master artist who delights in his work. This is who you are. And Father, we thank you that in light of who you are, we, we can know who we are. That we are beloved image bearers. And that we are invited, therefore, to know you, to love you, to delight in you, to trust you, to obey you, and therefore, to be increasingly able to reflect who you are to the world around, to reflect your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your justice, your wisdom. Father, may we continually find our identity and our relationship to you, and may we continue to explore what this means and what this looks like to inhabit the one true story of the world. We, we love you too, Father, and we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by your Spirit. Amen.